0: Welcome to The Hive, a platform focused on women's intimate health. With weekly episodes from the field's top practitioners, we discuss all of the things you've always thought about but never wanted to talk about. On this podcast, we are making the highest quality information on the most beloved part of your body accessible, understandable, and implementable. I'm your host Hannah Matluck and I started this platform as a result of my own experience with chronic pelvic pain. Throughout the years I spent healing my body, I became overwhelmingly interested and passionate about these topics and have made it my mission to create awareness and education on the complexities of the female body. Okay, you guys, listen up. I have a very quick announcement to make for those of you who want exclusive access to additional monthly content. Check out our Patreon page. Patreon is a tiered membership subscription platform, which essentially will provide all of you with additional content every single month. Some of this content includes eBooks with the best tips, tricks, quotes, advice, and information from each episode. There will be bonus podcast episodes every month. There will be private events every month where we will have the best practitioners, doctors, and thought leaders in the women's intimate health space host live Q and A's and information sessions. There is so much we're providing to you. So if you wanna become a Patreon to receive access to this additional content, we would so greatly appreciate it. And not only are we so excited to be able to provide all of this information to you but in addition you guys will be helping us continue to grow and expand and create so if you could please support us on patreon we would so greatly appreciate it you can go to www.patreon.com that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com backslash the V-Hive, to support us on patreon and without further ado let's get into this week's episode Today, I am here with Dr. Jamie Notman, a board-certified reproductive endocrinologist with years of experience treating couples and individuals with infertility. She serves as the Director of Fertility Preservation for CCRM New York. She completed both her residency training in obstetrics and gynecology, as well as her subspecialty training in reproductive endocrinology and infertility from NYU Medical Center. Prior to joining CCRM New York, Dr. Knotman was an assistant clinical professor in obstetrics and gynecology at the Mount Sinai Medical Center. So thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to talk with you and and have you explain to everyone listening what you do because I've never had a reproductive endocrinologist on the podcast. Awesome. So I'm the first. You are the first <laughs> and the best. Um so do you want to first explain what a re- reproductive endocrinologist is? Sure. So there's a there's reproductive endocrinologists and then
1: there's medical endocrinologists. So what I do is I deal with hormonal issues or basically imbalances one might say. Um, that may may make it harder to get pregnant. That's sort of the repro- – that's the endocrinology part of it. And then it's – I'm really a reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist. So most of what I do actually today is infertility. Really the repro-endo stuff is sort of less. But in contrast, like, a medical endocrinologist would treat your thyroid or may treat your, you know, diabetes or something like that where I deal with endocrine issues as they relate to fertility and then infertility. So
0: interesting. Is this, like... Is this a unique subspecialty of endocrinology?
1: So, no. So, you get to reproductive endocrinology through ob So, I did four years of residency in ob mm-hmm. And as you said, I'm a board-certified OBGYN. Right. I could deliver babies. I just don't do it anymore. After I completed my four years of fellowship, I then did three years of infertility reproductive endocrine training. And I'm a board-certified reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialist as well.
0: And now, I own, that's all I do. So, how did you get into this field and why were you so interested and, and so drawn to it? Sure. So I always knew I wanted to be a
1: doctor ever since it's funny. I have two girls. We read all the time at night. And ever since I was in second grade and I read about Elizabeth Blackwell, I was like, I want to be a doctor. Who's Elizabeth Blackwell? She was the first woman Oh, doctor, okay. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, which I'm like laughing because my girls would know that very well because we read about it all the time. But right. Um. so she, so I always knew I wanted to be a doctor. And then when I went to med school, I thought I wanted to be a breast surgeon, the surgical oncologist, because I had worked at Memorial Sloan Kettering between college and med school. And then when I got to med school, I saw, I was like, I don't want to have to do general surgery for so many years. And I really realized that I wanted to do something with women's health. And I found hormones sort of fascinating. And that's how I went into the field of OBGYN and then into the
0: field of infertility. So I guess the first place to start here would be to have you explain what egg freezing is. And I and we'll talk about egg freezing and IVF and the right. difference between the two. But I think it would make the most sense if you first explained what egg freezing is. Sure. Because so that's like the first place that someone would start.
1: Well, it depends, right? Okay. So I see women, I see women who come in to freeze their eggs or, you know, fertility preservation, and right. I also see couples who come in with infertility. Okay. It's interesting because my practice has shifted a lot. I would say now almost 50% of the patients I see are here for egg freezing. And that's because, you know, thanks to social media, Instagram, egg freezing has become sort of mainstream. But I also see a lot of couples who come in with infertility. And my job is to say, why is this couple experiencing infertility and how can I help them? Mm -hmm. For egg freezing, it's a little bit less, you know, the diagnostic dilemma is less there, right? Because a young woman comes in, she says, hey, I'm 33 years old, I'm not ready to have a child, and I would like, I think, to have one one day, what can I do? Mm -hmm. And then I say, okay, well you can freeze your eggs to improve your chances down the road when you come back and you may want to have a baby. So that's, it's a little bit more straightforward, I guess I would say, if someone freezing their eggs, because
0: there's less, you know, diagnostic issues. So who is the ideal candidate to freeze their eggs, why would a woman want to freeze her eggs? So that's a
1: good question. So I'm not sure if there's an ideal candidate. I guess the ideal candidate is someone who thinks they want children, does not want children today, but wants the opportunity to potentially have children in the future, right? That's the ideal candidate. When we first started doing this, women were in their 40s coming in to freeze their eggs because it was not something that was well known and it wasn't really mainstream. And because of that, our success rates were not great, right? So now, because it's mainstream and people know, the, the women who freeze are in their 30s or even young 30s. And so the outcomes down the road are so much better because the quality uh-huh. of the
0: eggs are better. Can you talk for a minute about why, as you get older, the quality of your eggs? declines? So at so we as women are born with all the eggs we're
1: ever going to have, right? Most of us are born with about one to two million eggs. Mm-hmm. When we get our first period, most of us are down to about three hundred and fifty to 400,000 eggs. And then over the course of your reproductive life, from your first period to your last period, you're constantly losing eggs. But it's not just quantity that quantity that declines, it's also quality. So the eggs that you're left with, at an older age are more likely to be abnormal. What that means is an egg should be released or ovulated with 23 chromosomes. It should be fertilized at some point with a sperm with 23 chromosomes and then the embryo has 46 chromosomes. But when eggs get older, they come out with variable numbers of chromosomes and that makes an abnormal embryo and it
0: leads to infertility, miscarriage, the whole thing. Got it. So. Another component that I want you to briefly touch upon is male infertility. So this is the thing about fertility struggles okay. is there is a so if you think about so
1: now we're talking about egg freezing, women saying, "Hey, I think I want to have a baby at some point, I'm not ready today. I know my egg quality is going to go down as will my quantity. Let's freeze some eggs." Great sperm, you men make sperm every seventy days. So yes, men will freeze their sperm, right, if they're gonna get cancer treatment because they may lose their sperm. But men don't really routinely freeze their sperm for use in the future because they know they're gonna keep making sperm almost indefinitely. Now, that's not to say that the sperm of a 55-year-old is the same as sperm of a 35-year-old, mm-hmm. right? There's still an age-related infertility aspect, but most men are going to produce sperm well into their
0: 60s. Okay, so if a man were to come to you to, to freeze his sperm, he's coming for more of a specific reason? He's
1: coming to freeze his sperm if he knows he's going to have a, something that's going to knock out sperm production. Right, And not something mechanical. So mm-hmm. what's the most common way men lose sperm production? Vasectomy, right? They're right. like, hey, I'm done having kids. Let's be done with it. Now, he's still making sperm, but the sperm is not ejaculated. Okay. But for a man who's going to have a decrease in his production, chemotherapy, you know, surgery, whatever it is, they may say, hey, I'm going to freeze my sperm before. But it's nothing. Age-related decline in fertility for a guy is nothing like what it is for a woman.
0: I, so that makes complete sense, and I guess uh, like the other question I have related to male infertility is often when women are having trouble conceiving. Is there a percentage that, uh, like, is there a percentage of that problem that could be related to their partner yeah. and Nearly not just? Forty
1: percent of cases have a component of sperm issues. Not that it's the primary component, but there is a component of it. I think in general, men are less likely to sort of talk about their problems. Like, we as women, like, we're pretty open. You know, we're all about community. And so we share what's going on, whereas with men, it's more hush-hush. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think cases of male factor infertility are as well known as female factors are.
0: So how would how would you explain, like, what the the top reasons for male infertility are?
1: Um, that's a good question. It's male infertility, the reasons for it are much less well-known than female infertility. So I would say environmental factors probably contribute significantly. Age definitely contributes. And probably a lot of it is genetic, but genes that we just don't know today.
0: And are women kind of, for lack of a better word, shocked when they come to you and you explain to them that it might it might not be just them that's the cause of their infertility i
1: think it's actually a really hard women in general tend to be able to shoulder the blame a bit better than men i would say a lot of times when we say listen it's your partner that's having the issue it can become a little bit more challenging because i think women are maybe by nature we take blame or we guilt ourselves much more but it's harder when it's a sperm issue because i think it's harder sometimes for men to a share and be accept
0: um, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that also men, when they are hearing this, it's probably the first time that they've ever heard this in their life.
1: We talk – women, we talk about I – mean, we talk about our bodies. We talk about this more frequently, I think, than men do. I think it's sort of – I feel bad for guys, right? Because – for women, there's a lot of resources and networks and support groups and people just share and share and share. But for men, I don't think it's the same. And I, I imagine it must be very isolating to
0: not have that outlet. Can you talk a little bit about – and I'm, I know that you could probably go into details on this question for a while, but the in terms of the process of egg freezing – what what the entire process looks like Mm -hmm. in a nutshell
1: so that's a good question so people there's a lot of misnomers when it comes to egg freezing the biggest one is that it takes months and months it actually takes no longer than 10 really two weeks to complete an egg freezing cycle you'll start you take fertility hormones or fertility medications that are initiated with the start of a menstrual cycle and the medications are given twice a day morning and night for over the 10 days and you're coming into the fertility doctor's office every two to three days for blood work and ultrasound so we can see how your body's responding to the medication. After you're, you know, we think things are right and you're good to go, we'll then schedule you to have the eggs extracted and the extraction will take place in our operating room or in an operating room. You'll get anesthesia, you'll go to sleep and the eggs are extracted vaginally. You wake up, we tell you how many eggs you got. You go home, you get a period about a week later and that's it. So it's actually a pretty short period. Period of time versus what people think—maybe weeks and weeks.
0: Is it a painful process? That's always my question. Yeah, <laughs> I anything, mean, I'm like, is it gonna hurt?
1: So the surgery—you'll be sleeping for, right? right? So you won't feel the procedure. Mm-hmm. The more eggs a woman gets, the more she's going to feel it. So your ovaries are normally pretty tiny, any of our ovaries, right? But when you take fertility hormones, they get bigger and bigger and bigger to accommodate the growing follicles. Those are shells that hold the egg. So you will feel that bloating, and you will be uncomfortable at some point. The maximal bloating is usually a, you know, four- or five-day process or period, and you'll come back from it, but you will feel that.
0: Mm -hmm. And... I also want to talk about AMH levels and how much they come into play when a woman is deciding to freeze her eggs.
1: So AMH is a hormone, anti-mullerian hormone. It's a hormone that is made by your follicles. Follicles are the shells that hold the eggs. So if you go to the grocery store, you buy a dozen eggs, the shell is the follicle, the egg is on the inside. Same thing with um, like fertility medicine, right. eggs. But the follicles secrete different substances that we can measure, so it's an indirect measure of egg quantity. So if you go to the fertility doctor and you're like, I want to freeze my eggs, and they say, oh wow, your AMH is amazing, that means you have a lot of follicles and therefore you have a lot of eggs and you should get a lot of eggs if you do egg freezing. On the flip side, if you go to a fertility doctor and they say, oh, your AMH is not that high, that means that you have less follicles and therefore you'll likely get less eggs. But the important thing for someone to remember who's freezing her eggs is that AMH does not tell you about quality. It tells you about quantity. So because your AMH is low, yeah, you'll probably get less eggs if you egg freeze. But it doesn't mean that you are infertile,
0: right? That's really interesting.
1: And people oftentimes don't explain that. And I've seen women who've gone elsewhere for egg freezing and then they'll come and they'll be like, great, I'm infertile, this is terrible, life is over so messed up and I'll say that's actually not true I say yeah your AMH is low you may have decreased you may go through menopause early this may be an indicator of poor quality but until you're out there being exposed to sperm right month after month and not getting pregnant you're not infertile.
0: So what are some causes of why women could have low AMH levels? It's a good Good
1: question. So most of the time, we just don't know, right? It's probably genetics. Mm -hmm. But the knowledge of fertility genetics is really in its infancy. There are some identifiable causes like, hey, I had an ovary removed. Or, Mm -hmm. hey, I had surgery on my ovaries and a cyst was taken out and with the bad came the good. I got chemotherapy, I got radiation, um, you know, those sorts of identifiable reasons as well as I have endometriosis, endometriosis can eat away at egg quantity. But unfortunately, a lot of the time we don't know.
0: And is there a reason why, like, how would you explain someone having high AMH levels but low egg quality? Well, like, why is that? We don't know. We don't know either. you you
1: can be 40 years old Uh and have an AMH of four, which you're like, that's great. My AMH is awesome. I get so many eggs. But because I'm 40, my quality stinks. So just because you have a lot of eggs, a high AMH doesn't mean your quality is good. High AMH will protect you in a way if you're doing IVF because you're going to get so many eggs that the thinking is hopefully we'll find a good one in there. But it doesn't mean because your AMH is high that you
0: will actually get a normal embryo, and so some some doctors don't really explain this properly to women. Not at all. Not at That's all. That's so crazy. Because what
1: has happened is the AMH test has been this surrogate marker for fertility. Uh-huh. And patients come in, they're like, "I want the fertility test." I'm like, "Oh, okay, I know what they're talking about." But it it's not an indicator of your fertility. It may mean some. It may mean something about your fertility, but it does not necessarily mean something.
0: Have you heard of this test called Modern Fertility? No, it actually Kristen told me about it a while ago, and it's a like at home fertility test. That's the thing. There's a lot of I'm companies that what, are trying yeah. to
1: maximize the fertility story, right, or the fertility journey, and some of it's good and some of it's not good. And mm-hmm. sometimes and I say this like in the nicest way possible. I mean, yeah, I went to four years of med school for of residency, three years of fellowship, like. If it can be done at home with like a random like ten dollar right. kit, like something's wrong, right? Like, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's something to be said for that. Yes, I think it's great that we have pushed this conversation forward and women talk about it and women do it. And that's it's a great. forty
0: dollar kit that you order. I think you either pee or. Blood and send it back.
1: The problem is, you can get false information from some of these
0: and have a false sense of security or a false sense of anxiety. The reason that I just thought of that was because when, as we were talking about the AMH levels, it probably gives you some something. I don't know if it gives you your AMH levels or something similar, but the information probably isn't explained properly to women what that really means. So it's like you're doing this test, but you don't even really understand what the results that's are the problem. and you that's need the someone problem to interpret the results right um so as i was talking to a few friends of mine who have gone through the egg freezing process and something that they talked a lot about and and asked to their doctors was freezing their eggs versus their embryos and what the difference is so that's a, another great question Actually, you did a lot of good homework. (laughs)
1: Um, So, okay. So the difference between eggs and embryos Last month, I
0: was like, I'm really going to step up my
1: research game. Eggs and embryos, huge difference. But in order to freeze embryos, you need a sperm source, right? Mm -hmm. So if you do not have a partner who you plan to have children with, you usually do not have a sperm source unless you're willing to use a donor sperm. Now, when we first started doing this X number of years ago, yeah, it was better to freeze sperm embryos with donor sperm because we weren't that good at egg freezing. But now we're really good at egg freezing. And the point of egg freezing, as I see it, is reproductive choice and options. So you're sort of closing your options a little bit if you take an egg and you fertilize it with a sperm because you can't unfertilize it, right? It is what it is. The biggest difference between egg and embryos is information today. So if you freeze your eggs and you have 10 eggs frozen, I'm gonna say, hey, you got 10 eggs frozen. You're gonna say, great, okay, I'll see you in like three years. You could have no good embryos, one or three. If you freeze embryos today, I'm gonna call you and say, hey, from your 10 eggs, you have one or two viable embryos. So you'll have information. So it's when do you want the information? Do you want the information today? Or do you want it X number of years down the road? People will say, well, if I get it X number of years down the road, then I can't do anything about it. And then that's it. And I say that's true. But if you took your eggs, you fertilized them with sperm and made embryos, you wouldn't be able to use those embryos
0: with a partner probably anyway. So so someone – like if, if someone – I'm 24. If someone my age were to come to you and want to freeze embryos, it would really be if they were married
1: mm-hmm. or... And even that, I mean, listen, I don't mean to be negative, yeah, yeah. but, like, 50% of marriages end in divorce. So right. if you come here in your 20s, I may say, hey, like, maybe think about doing just eggs because, right. you, you know, you have autonomy over that. Yeah. I see... I see women who are married freezing their eggs because they say my partner said he's not ready and he doesn't know if he's going to be ready mm-hmm. and I need to keep my options open, mm-hmm. and that's true. If you as a couple are like, we want to have kids but not for X number of years, fine, then do that. But both both people in the relationship
0: need to be on the same page. So uh, freezing embryos versus eggs, it's more a matter of information than like success rates. In a good lab, we can
1: do either the same uh, success, Uh right? So if you're good at egg freezing, you're good at egg freezing. You just, when you thaw those eggs and you don't have a good embryo, it's not because the freeze was not good, it's because the eggs were not good Mm -hmm. in a good quality lab. If you go to a lab that's not good, yeah, you're right, they are gonna mess up those eggs. right? Or may mess up the eggs, right? So you have to make sure you know where you're freezing. Interesting, I'm learning a lot. (laughs) And then you have, adding it to your research, now you're like an expert.
0: Um, What's next? Okay. Another, so I have one friend in specific that I was, I was speaking to who's going through the egg freezing process and um, she's endometriosis. And so I also talk a lot about endometriosis on the podcast. And my, my question for you, what I wanted to ask you is the relationship between endometriosis and egg freezing and Can you just talk about why women with endometriosis may be more inclined to freeze their eggs? So I always say, think of endometriosis like a termite
1: in your house. What Mm -hmm. happens when you have a termite in your house? It eats away at your wood, right? Your house can crumble. Endometriosis in your ovaries is that termite in your house. It eats away at your ovaries and is going to decrease egg quantity. So you may have decreased egg quantity at a significantly younger age because of the termite. So, and, And women with endometriosis are more likely to get multiple surgeries. Mm -hmm. And what happens when you have multiple surgeries on your ovaries? Eat away the quantity of eggs in the ovaries. So
0: that's why it's a risk for early menopause. So do you recommend that, I mean, like this is a blanket statement, but all women with endometriosis should freeze their eggs. Yeah, I mean, you can't, like that's hard to say. But when
1: I see a 32-year-old come in and say, hey, I have endo and I have no, like plans for my future fertility, I'm like, it's a great time to do right. it. I've also seen girls or women, I should say, who are like 21 and they will come in with their mom and they'll say, my daughter's already had two surgeries for endometriosis. I'm nervous. Can we freeze her eggs? I say, great idea. So I don't think there's one answer for everyone, but everyone at least deserves like to have their personal case mm-hmm. evaluated by somebody
0: and just like the information which is why i think that this is, it's so important that i'm here talking to you and you're you're here talking to me because i want women who have endometriosis who listen to the podcast just to know about this 100%. and that it's an option and why they would want to or not to do it
1: i recently saw God, i gotta have to remember how she i think she was about she was 29 or 30 mm-hmm. she went to her ob because she was having like pelvic discomfort two huge endometriomas on each ovary and her amh was pretty low and she was 29 she came her OBGYN center here and her amh must have been like was pretty low and i said listen i don't know if this means that you're going to go through infertility uh f- go through menopause early i also don't know what this says about your quality but i can tell you that at 29 you have a pretty low reserve and huge endometriomas and so the sooner you freeze your eggs probably the better those eggs will ultimately do right
0: but. yeah that makes sense. that's a good example and and that makes a lot of sense and so, if a if a woman was having excision surgery, would they want to freeze their eggs before, before. or after? Great before. question. Before, yeah. Why is that? Because even the best of surgeons,
1: when they take out the cystic tissue, they also take out good good ovarian tissue. So you're going to lose a lot of that from the surgery.
0: And, but would it be like so? If you had the surgery, would 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 it, could you make the argument that your ovaries are, like, healthier after? Mm-mm. No. Mm-mm.
1: I mean, listen, if you have a huge endometrioma and it's obstructing our ability to get to the good tissue, mm-hmm. yeah, you need it out, right? Just like some women have huge fibroids, and I'll say to them, you need these fibroids out because we can't access your ovaries. We'll never get to the ovary in the retrieval. Go deal with the fibroids and then come back. But in many ways, they're... It's again, it's it's an individualized basis, right? Because someone's fibroid surgery maybe needs to happen and someone's doesn't.
0: And another question that kind of relates to endometriosis, but not directly, is women with autoimmune diseases and how that could affect their fertility levels.
1: So that's a great question. And I think if you said to me, what's the area of fertility medicine that you are most curious to see develop in Mm -hmm. the next 20 years, I would say autoimmune cases and how it relates to infertility and genetics because there is something about autoimmune diseases that can make it more difficult for women to get pregnant. It's probably the autoimmune component where that immune system is attacking the pregnancy is somehow flared and activated. I don't think we know who it's going to cause a problem for, when or how but there is definitely more to learn Mm -hmm. in terms of
0: i find this topic so fascinating yeah there's a link too.
1: you know we know women who have thyroid disease what happens when you have autoimmune thyroid like graves disease you have antibodies in your body right Mm -hmm. that are not recognizing your thyroid as itself it's making auto antibodies well the same thing can happen to your ovaries you can have auto antibodies attacking your ovaries and then that's going to decrease your egg quantity so i I think when people say to me, like, what's the, I think that's the thing I'm curious to see how it plays out. I'm also curious to see how the genetics of infertility play out. I mean, there has to be genes for all this stuff. We just don't know what those genes
0: are. And so I think as time goes on, it's going to be so interesting to see that. And it also, like, I, I was just thinking about it when I was preparing for this interview. And if your body is like struggling in, other areas. if you have an autoimmune disease in your body struggling in other areas it's obviously the, your fertility it, it makes sense that that would be a, an area of your body that would be affected too mm-hmm. um do you see a lot of women who have like just come because they have some sort of autoimmune disease and they're concerned about their fertility well the the problem is it's like hard to separate the two. who gets right. autoimmune diseases right. women in their 30s right. who has
1: infertility women in their 30s right or 40s so you see a lot of women who have thyroid disease or other forms of autoimmune disease, and they also have infertility. So you're like, am I just seeing this subset of the population, mm-hmm. or is it just more common? I'm not sure if we really know, mm-hmm. but we see a lot of women with autoimmune conditions.
0: What are what would be like the most common autoimmune conditions that you see? Thyroid, hands, thyroid, thyroid. thyroid. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. and then what about? Like rheumatoid arthritis and celiac disease. Yeah, I mean, we see patients with that. We definitely do, but not like we see
1: thyroid disease. Uh And I think with celiac, there's different like gradations of it, right? Like true celiac disease is, I mean, those patients are picked up when they're little, right? Mm -hmm. But I think maybe a sensitivity to some foods that cause
0: inflammation. Yeah, I think that's definitely something we see. Mm -hmm. And is there anything that women can do to increase their, like naturally through food or lifestyle, just to increase their fertility levels. And I know that's like a hard it's question. It's a good yeah. question.
1: I mean, if you would have asked me this when I was a resident or a medical student, I'd be like, no, because right. the textbook says no. Right. If you ask me now, you know, I'll, I'm not going to tell you all day, I'm, but a lot of years into this, uh-huh. I would say, yes, I do think there's a component between Western and Eastern medicine that we don't know what that is. Right. So, I always say the older I get, the more Eastern I go because I do think acupuncture and Eastern medicine has, is onto something. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's been going on for thousands of years, Chinese medicine, right? Right. So I I do think there's certain things you can do, whether it's like meditation or acupuncture, change your diet that could help your fertility. But what I'm always careful of saying is back to the thing about women and guilt and blame is we shoulder a lot of the guilt in everything, but particularly as it relates to fertility because we all grow up thinking, oh, you know, we play house or doll when we're little, right? One day we're gonna be a mom. And it's just, it's sort of instinctive. Yeah, It's like imprinted. And then you get to be whatever age and you come here and we're like, uh, and me as the fertility doctor is like, wow, this is not looking good. And you're, it's totally brings you, knocks you to your knees, right? Because you're like, what is going on here? So I think that there is definitely things we can do, but I don't think that women should say, oh, it's because I, you know, ran six miles or it's because I drank that Diet Coke or had an extra glass of Mm -hmm. wine, because that's not why you had infertility.
0: It may contribute to the the end, but it doesn't mean that's why. So I just thought of this question, and and it's not something that I was planning on asking you, but now I'm happy I thought of it because it's so important. How do you deal with the like mental and emotional component of when yeah. women and men? My own men, mental and emotional. Yeah, your own. That's it's, it's one very thing. different. I say yeah. my
1: job is bipolar, right? right. I Love. I And ride it's like the you're eyes. a
0: therapist. Like you mm-hmm. have to. Not only are you giving your patients this news of good or bad, but then it's like the lows are so low. Yeah. How do you deal with that as a it's doctor hard. and it's as, a, as a human? And this,
1: I think, is a maturation process. I think when I first came out and I was in attending, like my early years. I took it very hard. I couldn't, there were some days I couldn't even go home because I felt guilty about having two kids. I felt guilty about, I I always was like, was it my fault? Did I miss something? And it was so difficult to share with patients bad news. Now granted, we don't deal with death, right? We're not telling people they're dying, but in many ways when you tell someone they're infertile, it is like a a diagnosis of, Mm -hmm. you know, a death diagnosis. But I think as you do this more and you gain perspective on life and on the journey, I think you're able to help people sort of ride the wave and and know that it's going to fall, but then it's going to rise again, mm-hmm. right? And I, I always say to patients, if you are accepting of the journey, whatever that may be, whether it's IVF or egg donation or adoption, you'll become a parent. It may be rough in between, but I think that the journey – You'll get to where you want to go, but mm-hmm. it, it's very challenging.
0: Yeah, I'm just picturing because like I know I've been that that patient not in in or fertility fertility clinic, but just in doctors' offices in general where you just sit there and you start hysterically crying. Yeah, and I'm just like, how does a doctor deal with that? It's hard. <laughs> yeah. I say, you know, we talk about it. Um, I actually, it's
1: funny. I work with my best friend who have right. been best friends since we were teenagers, but. I say sometimes I'm like I can't I just can't do it today I cannot give bad news today yeah. I can't I need to I need to I need to take an hour I need to take a day yeah because people maybe wouldn't know this but it hurts us too right like a lot <laughs> yeah
0: I because I could we make imagine emotional connections
1: with our patients and so not only that but as a doctor you want to do no harm and you want yeah. to help people and sometimes you. Your treatments can't help Mm -hmm. and I think I'm like wow I'm I can't imagine what it would be like to be an oncologist or somebody who deals with
0: death I can't either it's really hard I can't imagine either how what differentiates your clinic or CCRM from another egg freezing or IVF clinic and when a, a woman or man a couple is going through the process how do they choose the best that's a great so that's a i would say and i say this all the time
1: you can like me or not like me it doesn't really matter what matters is the laboratory the ivf Mm -hmm. lab if your ivf lab is not of top quality your doctor can be amazing you're not getting pregnant right because it's it's really a function of the lab ccrm has the best lab in the country because the science has been pushed forward in a way that the the embryos just grow and divide in 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 you know a way that they don't in other clinics now how
0: does a, what how does a lab become like how do what do they what does one lab do differently from another So every attention to detail temperature right.
1: pH oxygen nitrogen uh-huh. handling all of these little factors that you would never know right. And listen I didn't even know until I I say I trained in a great place I worked in a good place before CCRM it wasn't until I came to CCRM that I was like holy smokes this is amazing And I think that that really sets apart who is successful and who isn't. Now, here we also have more of a boutique approach to how we practice medicine, right? So we are, you know, we don't do thousands upon thousands of egg retrievals a year. So we're able to give our patients a more, you know, a, a boutique sort of level of care that is is
0: nicer for both patient and physician. Mm-hmm. So how could, some, how would someone go about, Finding the best place to freeze their eggs. So, I think a lot what of what should they look for? Yeah, I yeah. think
1: a, you have to ask what the thaw rate is and the success from those eggs. A lot of clinics freeze eggs, and a lot of clinics make it look sexy, right? You're like, oh, look at that clinic with their amazing marketing. Right. It looks like Soul Cycle. I want right. to go there. But we can all look like Soul Cycle, but it doesn't mean that our embryos will perform you know, in the way that we want them to. So you have to say, hey, how many years have you guys done this? How many thaws have you done? How many babies do you have? Because without that information, you cannot differentiate places other than what they look like
0: on your, you know, social media ad feed. So now I want to segue into IVF and and the difference between egg freezing and IVF and the process of where egg freezing would come into play and where IVF would come into play
1: so egg freezing and IVF look the same to your body in terms of the fertility hormones you take the same hormones you come in every two to three days for the same blood tests and ultrasounds mm-hmm. and the egg extraction is the same That's where it ends though right an egg is extracted and for an egg freezing patient the eggs are frozen when an I, when an IVF cycle is performed the egg is taken take the egg is extracted excuse me it's fertilized by sperm an embryo is created and is grown in the laboratory so how it's treated after the extraction is very different for a couple or a patient undergoing ivf the embryo will then ultimately be put back into the uterus right it'll be transferred you do not do that with egg freezing Mm because you're not putting you know you're not putting eggs into a uterus
0: so are there clinics that just do egg freezing and just do ivf or do most so there are pop-up clinics now who
1: are focusing on egg freezing because they say it's sort of a cost reduction. If we only do one thing, we can do one uh-huh. thing, and that's it. But that's not a great way to look at it because what happens when you want to use those eggs?
0: Right. What that are you going to do? It, right. That
1: clinic doesn't do it at IVF. How do you know another clinic's going to accept your eggs? We don't have to accept other people's eggs. We all can, you know. So it's better, in my opinion, to go to a place that does egg freezing Both. and IVF because
0: uh-huh. you want to be able to use your eggs down the road. And this actually segues perfectly into storing your eggs or your embryos. So if someone were to come to you to freeze their eggs, then they would have to store their eggs with you.
1: Correct. Mm-hmm. Until they wanted well, to Well, actually, use yes them. and no. I shouldn't uh-huh. say
0: that. You can store your eggs off-site,
1: right? Some patients will say, hey, I found a cheaper place to store in Massachusetts. Can I send my em- eggs there, my embryos there? Sure. Uh-huh. Um, and people with eggs may do that because when you off-site site store, you're not using it tomorrow embryo is less likely because you're an embryo freezer or an embryo user, IVF, you're going to come back and use
0: those embryos rather quickly. And so you have to pay, like a patient would have to pay to store their eggs for however many years they wanted right. to store them for. The first year is included in the price, in most clinics, uh-huh. in the price of the process, but you have to pay after that. And now I'm just curious, why, if someone were to use their eggs within a year of freezing them, why would they freeze them? Is that that an ignorant question? No,
1: it's not. Sometimes we'll do a rush freeze for someone who has cancer and maybe undergoing treatment, but it's unlikely that someone who had to rush freeze for cancer is going to be able to use those eggs. Right. Sometimes there can be a case where the partner has no sperm. And we're going to see if we can get sperm on the day of the egg retrieval. Like Uh the urologist will come in. And the urologist may not be able to get sperm. And the couple may not be ready to talk about donor sperm. So usually they'll say, just freeze my eggs. And then maybe they go and they think about it. And they come back five months later and they say, you know what? We are ready to use our eggs with donor sperm. Mm -hmm. That's a case. But you're right. Most of the time, eggs will be frozen for more than a year. Right. What's the average time that you usually see? That's a good question. We don't know yet. Uh-huh. Because the thaw process in most places is really in its infancy, right? Because most women now are coming in to, to freeze, but not right. many have come in to thaw. So I would say we're now starting to see more and more women come and then thaw and use their eggs.
0: So, is it usually after like five years or 10 Depends years? How old. Or, so, uh-huh. I'm
1: seeing a lot of young 30 year olds freeze now, and I haven't seen hardly any of them. I saw a patient yesterday, or maybe the day before, who froze her eggs with me when she was 37, mm-hmm. and she came back with a partner now, and she's 39, mm-hmm. and they want a partner had a vasectomy, so they need to do IVF anyway, but they're going to thaw her eggs with his sperm, so two years. But most of the 31, 32 year olds, they may not be ready to use their eggs for a, a
0: while. Right. And who's an ideal IVF candidate?
1: I mean, that's a hard yeah. question,
0: but IVF is meant for patients
1: in general who have infertility, right? right. So if you fail other, less of aggressive fertility
0: treatments, you're going to be making your way to IVF. Mm-hmm. And similarly, similar questions that I had for, for egg freezing, but what is the time frame of IVF, and is it a painful process? And So IVF takes longer because you have to ultimately
1: transfer an embryo back in. It doesn't take longer in the injections. Mm -hmm. It just takes longer to get the embryo ready to put it back into your uterus. So as opposed to two weeks there, you may be talking about a month to six weeks. Mm -hmm. But in general, it's still a pretty fast process, I would say.
0: Um, And, yeah. And then how, similarly, again, to egg freezing, but how would someone go about Finding like the best doctor or the best lab labs yeah to, to so do that's IVF where with. you're
1: also gonna need to look and really get an idea about success rates about mm-hmm. clinic success rates because that's gonna dictate who what your success is
0: personally. If you had to give three questions for for someone to ask, what would they be? It's a
1: good question. I would say what is your success
0: rate when you transfer a
1: single embryo, Mm -hmm. right? Because some places will transfer a bunch of embryos, and that drives up their success rate because they're putting more back in. I would say how many IVF cycles does this clinic do a year? And I would also say,
0: um, yeah, I think those are two of your big questions. Okay, thank you. And I also want you to touch upon the hormones and medications that women need to take when they're going through egg freezing and IVF. So you take medications that are called gonadotropins. So our brain makes lots and lots
1: of hormones, right? But the ones that they, we make as they relate to fertility are your FSH and your LH. Mm-hmm. We give you these hormones exogenously, right? In supra doses, so much higher levels than your body would make in a regular menstrual cycle and these hormones are injectable, and you give yourself these hormones in the morning and the night, and these hormones help the ovaries produce multiple eggs as opposed to the
0: one egg that you would usually produce in a cycle. Interesting. Another question that I came across and, and that I th- would assume most, most people would have as well is insurance doesn't cover egg freezing. I assume um, or yes do they?
1: and no. So more and more companies are signing up mm-hmm. progeny or better fertility benefits. So like Google, Facebook, Apple, a lot of the tech companies, um, Amex, Goldman. There are big companies
0: that will cover it now. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the relationship that you have with your patients, or that any other practitioner would have with their patient. How like how do you ensure the the best doctor-patient relationship? And when a woman's f- trying to find a doctor or a clinic to freeze their eggs or do IVF with, like, I feel like it's almost like finding the right therapist. Like you want to connect with the doctor. I agree. I think not every doctor is right for
1: every patient, right? right? So some of us are more I always say, I give it to I give it to you straight. I'm mm-hmm. a realist. And mm-hmm. some people do not like that. And they will be like, I do not like that aspect of your personality. But that's how I would want to be treated as a patient. And so I guess that's how I treat patients. Yeah. But I think you have to find a relationship that works for you. Because some of these relationships are long. Like there are patients I've been with for years, right? And so if it's not a good relationship, it's not going to be good for you as the patient. But it's probably not also good for me as the physician.
0: hmm and what other practitioners, I know that you briefly talked about acupuncturists, and I was reading an article that you wrote, and I saw the name of an acupun- a fertility acupuncturist that you send a lot of mm-hmm. your patients to, but what other practitioners do you refer out to or are, are you getting patients referred from? So we do
1: refer a lot to acupuncturists. Mm -hmm. Um, I work a lot with different therapists because, like we said, this is sort of a journey and it's difficult. We also work with pelvic surgeons. Let's say a woman has a dilated fallopian tube or endometriosis. We generally don't do the surgery for patients anymore. Mm -hmm. We'll send them to a pelvic surgeon. We obviously work a lot with OBGYNs who refer to us, and then we refer our pregnant patients back to them. Um, Yeah, I would say those are big ones.
0: And are there any resources that you would recommend just to people listening?
1: I think the Internet's an amazing and terrible place all (laughs) at once, right? Because I think there is so much information you can find on on the Internet. Some are good and some some is bad, really, Mm -hmm. really bad. Um, But some is really good. I think Resolve is really good. Resolve is like the National Infertility Advocacy Group. Um, and I, th- I do think places like Instagram, as I can't believe I'm going to say that, but they are good because yeah. you will sort of seek out patients who had similar experiences.
0: Well, it's funny that you say that because the other day I just said the same thing. I'm like, I know everyone, you know, Instagram is so great and so horrible at the same time. But I was just thinking about this podcast and I was like, without Instagram, this it, the, Instagram has literally like. Helped me create this entire platform. Well, same as Facebook, right? right?
1: Before that, there was no sharing. I mean, in some ways, it's amazing. In some ways, it's terrible. Yeah, like, patients, we can get we get reviewed online, like on Yelp, like yeah. as yeah. if I'm a restaurant, yeah. you know. And that's so disheartening. Yeah. I don't people, I don't know if people know how hard it is to be a doctor to go online and read poor reviews. It's like yeah. someone like punching you in the face and then in the stomach, right? Yeah. And then you're like, oh god, that's so hurtful. Um, and then – but on the flip side, it also allows patients to share experiences that maybe they
0: wouldn't be able to share before it. Mm-hmm. I was also – when I was preparing for this interview, I was reading about the whole um, the whole thing that happened with – in I forgot where in the country it was with all of the eggs being lost. Mm-hmm. Not lost, you, but or, thawed. Thaw, all the eggs being thawed. Right. So there was well, a can you talk two about clinics, that for a
1: minute. one uh-huh. in I don't I don't remember one in San Francisco one I think is Cleveland where yeah, San, that's what yeah, I was reading anyone, about. Uh-huh. Where they the top was like left off of the tank and so a, a subset of the eggs were de-thawed. Um it's hard to understand how that happened in either yeah. place cuz there's so many alarms. And so it's a it's a little bit confusing to me how the alarms didn't like Alert, um, alert the practitioners, so I can't speak to it. Uh-huh. But I would be
0: surprised. I, I'm confused at how it happened. At how it happened. Mm-hmm. So interesting. Sad. Yeah.
1: It's really, really horrible. Yeah. I think that's it. I guess the biggest piece of advice yeah. I would say is, like, hang in there, right? Right. It can be hard, but – one of the biggest reasons patients don't ultimately conceive or achieve whatever their goal was is because of dropout, mm-hmm. right? And nobody is going to say that it's not emotional, it is not physical, it is financial. There's so many, so many layers of it. But if you sort of plow through it, um, you will ultimately get to the end game, which is or the end goal. But the the process can be rocky.
0: Yeah, and I also think that it's reassuring in a sense that science and technology, and there's obviously downfalls that come with this, but it's developing so rapidly that like every day there's better technology and more innovation and, and alternatives and ways that women can deal with these problems. Totally. Mm-hmm. Where can everyone contact you? Um, you
1: can email me. I think my, I don't know if, oh, so my email is jnopman, which is K-N-O-P-M-A-N. Um, at CCRMNY.com. dot com, I think that's probably the best way. Yeah.
0: And I'll link like the ccrm Instagram. Link, yeah, that's great. Yeah, and you you have ccrm has clinics all over the country. So ccrm is eleven. I think it's eleven. Uh-huh. They'd kill me if I didn't know the number,
1: but I think it's eleven all over the country, which is so unique. Because if you, I would say to women like, if you freeze your eggs in New York, but then you wind up moving to Colorado, uh, that's can, really cool. Yeah, we will take obviously within our own network because we all function the same. So there's a real advantage to being within a network. It's also amazing to bounce ideas off of people who are all over the country. That's also pretty great.
0: That's really cool. Mm -hmm. Because I was also reading about that and we were just talking about that. Like if you freeze your eggs in one state and then you you freeze your eggs in California and then you move to New York. You can ship them between our clinics, but we don't always, because we are the same. But if you didn't freeze them in your clinic. You would not, exactly.
1: Cool, thank you again. Awesome, it was so nice meeting you.
0: This podcast is for education purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other healthcare professional services, including the giving of medical advice. During the episodes, no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Listeners should seek the assistance of their healthcare provider for any concerns or questions they have.